belong to you. We, we know that the Bible tells us you have ordained our days before there were one. But Lord, we are human and we are very weak and it's very difficult when we lose loved ones. And so, Lord, we pray that you would comfort our hearts. We particularly pray for comfort for Rick and his children and family members, Lord. And we pray for our church as yet another one of our dear loved ones has gone home to be with you. They are benefiting greatly. We know that. It is we here who miss them. But Lord, I pray that you would use that to help us soldier on, help us keep fighting this great faith that you've given us, fighting this great faith and fight, Lord, running this race, Lord, that one day we may take our last breath or you may come get us and we will be with you. We do thank you, that promise we have. Because you resurrected Jesus, you will resurrect our bodies. And we long for your return. Lord, we thank you that we preach a message here that teaches that. Our faith is in Christ alone. It's through grace alone. (laughs) It's for your glory alone. It's through the word alone. And it is certainly by faith alone. We add nothing to it, Lord. We do not come with any of our own good works. We trust fully in your son's finished work. We put our soul faith in that. That's how you save us, Lord. You take our sins and you give us your righteousness. Today, those who have passed from this life to the next stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No fear, no agony of death, only the glory of the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your plan of salvation, Lord. Thank you that that gospel message is preached around the world with our missionaries and many others. Thank you that it goes out from here, from this, this pulpit and this ministry and these members of this church and every small group and in hospital setting and homes, uh, in vacation Bible schools and school classrooms. That message is our motivation. It is our life. And so we praise you for that, Lord. Now, Lord, as we speak of your son's great resurrection... May we be encouraged today. You you will come and get us. We will be with you soon. And we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is our passage. Last week we started into seven negative results that Paul gives us if there is not a bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we got through, I think, four of them. I want to rehearse just those four real quickly, and then we'll take on the next and a few other verses here. First, we said that to deny a bodily resurrection was to deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 12 through 13. Now, if Christ is preached that he has risen from the dead, that's bodily risen from the dead, how is it? How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That would be us. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. We mark the point that this speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord stepped out of heaven, he stepped into humanity. He was, we call it the incarnation. There he took on, added to his glorious perfection of deity and his shared essence with the Father. He added human flesh to that. And he was truly God and truly man. And so he died a man. He bled. He suffered. He died. He was put into a grave as a man, a dead man. But God raised him, humanly raised him bodily from that grave. 
and has given him all things, placed him at the right hand of the Father. And there he rules and reigns in a body, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will see him and experience him and touch him and understand him someday even greater at the resurrection. And so if you deny the resurrection, you deny the incarnation of Christ. Second, we said if Christ's body is not resurrected, our preaching is worthless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Wow, we wasted a lot of years, those of us that have been in church for, I know for me, more than <laughs> pushing 60 years. Uh, how about some of you? How many, how many Sundays did you waste? You could have been out doing something else and listening to old preachers proclaim Jesus. He says, if Christ isn't bodily raised, all of our preaching's in vain. We've wasted our times. We're fools. Next, he said this. Our third thought was, if Christ is not bodily resurrected, all faith in Christ is worthless. Notice right there at the end of verse 14. Your faith also is in vain. So not only was preaching a waste of time, it was, it was yours was just purely human faith. It wasn't God-given. It, it was just something that you powered through yourself, and it was completely empty and worthless if Christ is not bodily raised. Fourth, we said that if Christ is not bodily resurrected, the apostles and all gospel proclaimers are false witnesses. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Notice the connection. He says, if the dead are not raised, we are absolute liars. We are, we have, we, we're danger of perjury, right? We, we lied, we gave false testimony to the truth of God. He's making a strong statement and it is all connected to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the end of 15, this is so important, in the fact that the dead are not raised so that we won't be raised. If Christ is not raised, we are not raised. And that leads us to our fifth point. It'll be the first one on your notes today if you have them. If Christ is not bodily resurrected, we all die in our sins. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That's uh, going back again to verse 14. Says it again. You, listen to this. this. This just shakes you, doesn't it? You are still in your sins. If the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ does not take place, sin, Satan, and death win. And worse yet, the wages of sin remain. Death remains. There's no eternal life. There's no one justified. There's no one sanctified. There's no one made righteous. All die in their sins. That is such a hopeless statement. Now, he's using the negative to bring about the positive, isn't it? But just for a moment, can you imagine this? Can you imagine, Christian, I'm speaking to you. Can you imagine not being forgiven of your sins right now? Can you imagine that? That every sin you've ever committed, you're going to pay for for the rest of your eternal life. That's what he's saying here. You'll die in your sins. That's what sinners do. 
Sinners who are not forgiven of their sins die in their sins. Can you imagine not being forgiven of your sins? Can you imagine all the penalties that come with unforgiveness? Everything that forgiveness offers through God in Christ is not available. You don't have any of that. You have no clear conscience. You're still guilty if he does not come out of that grave. I I just thought of so many verses. We're no longer conquerors in Christ. You're not a conqueror of anything. You never conquered nothing. You're not You're not free. You actually are stand accused before God. You remain captives and slaves to sin. Death holds you in your Greek, uh, in his grip, and you are hopeless. See, if there's no resurrection of Savior, there's no assurance. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no satisfactory payment for sin. There's no atonement. There's no redemption. There's no penalty paid in full. There's no reconciliation, no salvation, no new life, and no justification. If he doesn't come out of that grave. But I don't want this to be a hopeless sermon. <laughs> and neither does Paul. Look at verse 20. I'll be down here in just a few minutes. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. I, I have to go through that negative because that's what he's doing. That's what the scripture's doing. The scripture's reminding us how negative it is, how horrible it is. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you are not forgiven of your sins. We must think about that. Now let's take a little trip through Romans to remind us of the great things of the resurrection. Look at chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Right at the end of Romans chapter 4, there's this tremendous encouragement about the resurrection. He has brought about in his inspired writing by the Holy Spirit, Paul has used David and uh, Abraham, their great patriarchs that they held in high worshipful (laughs) poorly, um, uh, regard, right? So he uses them as an example of how they were justified by faith, not by their works, not by their heritage, not by anything they had done. He shows that they were justified. Now, drop in towards the end with me for verse 23. Now, not for his sake only, Abraham. Not just for Abraham's sake was it written that it was credited to him. Well, what was credited? Righteousness, thank you. Look, if you don't have Jesus' righteousness, you ain't getting in the door of heaven. There's another door, but it ain't heaven. You have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't come with your own. You have to come with his righteousness. So the Bible says it was credited to him, Abraham. Verse 24, but for our sakes also, it's just not for Abraham, just not for David, but for our sake also to whom it was credited as those who believe in him, now look at this, who has raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You know how you get righteousness credit to you so you can stand in the presence of God for all of eternity is believe in the bodily resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he nails this point home. Look at verse 25. He who, God who delivered over, delivered him over because of our transgressions, and that's a strong word, You knew what sin was, and you crossed it anyway. You were born a sinner, right? That's depravity. We're born all sinners. When Adam fell, we fell. We'll get into that in a minute. And that's that's the problem. But notice, you know, here's the solution. But was raised because of our justification. Now, I want you to think about that term, justification. It's one of our monumental words in in the Christian doctrine, right? 
It means God declares us righteous. So without the raising, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody is declared justified before God. That means God, the Godhead spends the rest of eternity alone because nobody can get into the presence with him. It is all based, our lives, our dear sweet sister Marcia and others who have gone home to be with the Lord, our dear, those dear saints are there because God justified us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's such an important truth. We don't have a dead Jesus hanging on a cross. He was put in the grave to show he was dead. The wages of sin killed him. Our sins killed him. But God raised him from the dead for our justification. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. There was this antinomian type of teaching that the Jews were blaming the Christians would have. That would mean like, oh, I'm saved by grace. I just live anyway. Jesus died for me. Grace, grace, grace. Just live anyway. And they were challenging Paul on that. And in his inspired anticipation, he loves to answer questions. And that's what he's doing here. And so people would say, the first five chapters are so without works, right? There's no works in salvation. And for five chapters, Paul has this banged home that you're a sinner and your only way to God is through his grace and mercy. And so here, the, uh, the legalists would come along and say, oh, well, great. You're just teaching this salvation where you can just live any way you want and you'll just get in. So he says, how can that be? Majinental, a little Greek phrase. Literally can be translated this, impossible. Now listen up, believer. Paul is saying it's impossible to be justified by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, end of chapter 4, and it not radically change our lives. And I mean radically. You were dead, now you're alive. You were blind, but now you see. You were lost, and now you're fine. It is radical when you come to know Jesus Christ. And so he says, how can this be? How can we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Verse 1, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live it any longer? Now look at verse 3 with me. Or do you not know? Maybe you could say, maybe you've forgotten why you've been rubbing elbows with the world, Christian. Maybe you've forgotten that all who have been baptized, we didn't do a great word with the Greek word baptismo. We kind of just brought it over into English. It, It can be easily translated immersed identified you don't you know that you've been immersed or or um, identified into Christ Jesus having been identified and immersed into his death when he died you died Paul saying therefore if we are buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so too we might walk in newness of life right so if Christ died, we died. And if he was raised, we were raised to new life. That's, that's, that's the message of Jesus Christ, new life. Who did you have in him? He isn't, he isn't new death, right? Well, you're just going to die again and just, you know, you're not going to have a body. You're just going to float around in some sparkly somewhere. No, it's new life. It's new life on this earth as a Christian, but it's new life eternally. That's what he raised us for. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Did we, see, did we not see last week that Jesus was very physical after his resurrection? He appeared to 500 brethren, 
At one time, he appeared to all the apostles. He shows up at Thomas's unbelief and says, hey, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Put your, while you're looking at that, put your fingers in my hands and thrust your hand in my side. He's very physical. So, so here Paul is reiterating oh, about a year and a half to two years later as he wrote the book of Romans. Look, he's physically raised from the dead. You will be physically raised from the dead in his likeness. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Isn't that good? Old Scott died with Christ. Praise the Lord. You wouldn't want to know that guy. Right? That dude was headed for hell. He had nothing to offer the Lord. All he had was the wages of sin that Jesus was going to have to pay for. That's all he could offer. Here's my sin. I have nothing for you. So he died when Jesus died in order that our body of sin might be done away with. He wants to take that away from us. Here's a great so that, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 7, for he who has died is free from sin. That's why I was doing that little list earlier. If he doesn't come out of that grave, you're not forgiven for sins. There's no justification, no sanctification. You're still in your sins. You die in your sins. Now look at verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, the construction of that sentence, the um, grammatical construction of that there in verse 8 are two equal statements. If we died with Christ, that's one equal statement. We live with him. Another equal statement. That's, that's what he's doing there. That's, a, that's a, the tense in the passage. It wants, he's trying to drive this home. If you die with him, you live with him. If you didn't die with him, you will not live with him period. That's, that's what he's trying to drive home. Verse 9, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, look at this, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So he, being the first fruits, we'll get into that in a minute, he's leading the way. He was raised from the dead bodily. He's never going to die again. So death has no rule over him, no mastery over him again. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, even so, now if that all happened, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. There's a spiritual resurrection, right? So when we do baptisms, you'll notice they wear these shirts, and and they come in there, and they give you their testimony, and I I just love those testimonies. But as they turn and walk out, (laughs) it says, identified in Christ. Now, they weren't saved in the waters of baptism. We do not believe that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. But that was a public profession of what God had already done. But they're saying, as they put that shirt on and in their testimonies, they're saying that I am no longer dead to Christ. I am alive in Christ. That is my spiritual position. Alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, Paul wants to bring us to the fact that we have, we have the ability to overcome sin. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And he goes on and on. But there's this beautiful connection to the death of Christ and to the resurrection of Christ. One more passage, Romans 8, towards the end. Remember we said last week that God is a God of life. Everything about him is life. That's what he does. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Some people have a hard time with that word. If you're a Christian and you love the Bible, you learn to love that word elect. Because you do not deserve it. 
And it comes back to our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation, that we are empty. We have nothing to offer God. It is God in his sovereign mercy and grace who calls us out of sin, not our somehow mustered up some kind of goodness in our depravity to choose him. That's impossible. Those are contrary statements. God saves his elect. That's what he does. And though we don't understand every nuance of all of that, and we'll go to our graves not fully understanding the great complexity of how God knows who's are his, we worship in it, don't we? And I love that term, who will bring a charge against God's elect. Let's stop and think about that who for a minute. Who? I mean, they can kill us. They can persecute us. They can take our ability to meet publicly like this away. They can do all those things, and, and they will, and they do it all around the world. We're just a little bit of a holdout right here, right now, but it's coming. But they cannot bring any spiritual, judicial charges against us because Christ stepped in the way of all of that. All the charges that are due, you and I as a believer, those got charged to Jesus Christ. You go, well, that's unfair. That's right. It was. It was was the most unfair thing that's ever happened in all of the universe. Jesus Christ took our sin and was judged. And so so that we could say with Paul here, who can bring a charge against me? I mean, literally. I, I, certainly, if we sin, we should confess those things. We can't walk around and go, oh, hey. I'll. <laughs> no, no. This is talking about our positional, eternal standing with God. Who can bring a charge, he says. God is the one who justifies. You think you justify? You think somebody else justified? Nobody justified. Nobody declares righteous but God. And God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, chose to declare this sinner justified. What about you? Do you know that? See, you got to know that. If you don't know that, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Because you don't know if you're going to make it home today. You're not guaranteed of that. See, if you know that Christ stepped in the way of the judgment and he took our sin and you are now declared righteous, what a beautiful thing that is. Nobody can bring a charge against us. Notice what he says. Who, Who is the one who condemns? Think you can condemn me? You can't because Christ Jesus, it is he who died. He was condemned for me. And he wasn't just condemned. Notice, yes, rather, who was raised. Here we go. Who was at the right hand of God, who was also intercedes for us. So, so you want to condemn me? Christ still steps in our way, doesn't he? He still is the one who took our condemnation because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, verse 1. And then he says this, and I love this verse, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of God? I mean, just think about this. Well, tribulation? You got any troubles going on? You think that can separate you from God? How about some stress? Is this a stress-free group of people? No. We we have our stress, don't we? That can't separate us from God. How about persecution? We maybe don't feel like the first century church did, but I think probably every one of us have family members or friends who hate us because we're Christians or, or greatly dislike us or don't give us the first invitation of Thanksgiving. We might pray or something, and that could be really bad. 
Well, famine, well, these natural, what people call natural disasters, can they separate you? Can hurricanes and tornadoes and, and rising oceans? How about homelessness, like nakedness? You don't have enough to cover your body. How about peril or sword, the threat of death? He quotes an Old Testament passage, Psalm 44, 22 here, for all our for our sake, we are all being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to the slaughter. That's how, that's how followers of Christ have always been looked at. But verse 37, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loves us. See, what I said earlier was you'll never be a conqueror if Christ doesn't come out of the grave. But here the Bible says we are overwhelmingly conquerors. And why? Because we can say with Paul that we are convinced that neither death I just, I wasn't there this morning. Gina was at the Delaney's and shot over there right away. But there was a moment where she took her last breath. It didn't separate her from God. One breath left, from, left an early breath, earthly breath to a heavenly breath. Just like that. Just like that. You, you want to talk about conqueror? They're still trying to conquer death, right? They've got people cryo-freezed in Ziploc bags or whatever they put them in, <laughs> hoping they're going to get there somehow and figure out how to get people back alive. They can't do it. They, they, they're trying to solve cancer. They're trying to solve it. I'm, hey, we're all for those things. But they're not going to solve death because the wages of sin is death. And so we're convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or things present, or what about even things to come that we don't know what's going to happen with governments and powers, right, and all these things, heights or depths, or any other created things, because he just gets tired of talking about all these things that can't stop the separate, help us, excuse me, can't make us separate it from the Lord. He just says, any other created thing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is the blessing of the resurrection. And so as you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is the so critical part of the gospel. That's what I'm trying to convince you of. You have Christ's cross work. Oh, it's so glorious, his atonement. But the resurrection allows all of us to believe we're free from the grave. We're free from its power. We're free from the devil's working and the sons of disobedience. Hell's run is over for a Christian. It had a good run with you, didn't it? Some of you it had a really good run. Thought you were going to be a, a team captain there somehow. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to beat death. I'm going to come out of that grave, and hell will not take my sons and daughters. On the contrary, we find Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He says, you're going to die in your sins. It's interesting, they went on to reject Jesus Christ. They hated his apostles. And they did everything they could to put them in the grave. When we go to Acts chapter 5, we find a very interesting uh, uh, conversation, let's say it nicely, between the Pharisees and Peter and the apostles. They have been healing and preaching and uh, the church is just exploding they, they're so filled with jealousy, verse 17, that they take them and they throw them into prison. And doubtlessly they're beat. 
But there an angel of the Lord comes in uh, verse 19 and opens the gates and they come out. And the next day these rulers come to the center of town and they say, look, we're going to bring these men out and we are going to charge them and we're going to try to convince everybody, just like we convinced Christ, that they need to die. Go get them for us. Yes, sir. Come back. They're not there. Well, where are they? We don't know. All the guards are there. They're all chained together. All the doors are locked, but they're not there. About that time, another guy runs up and says, hey, you know those guys you're looking for? They're downtown preaching. These guys are incredible. They, have, they are so convinced of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that nothing, nothing can stop them. And so they charge them and they threaten them. And then Peter speaks in verse 29. Look at this. But Peter and the apostles answer, we must obey God rather than men. That's a great question for us. What's it going to take? You know, there's some in here who lose their jobs over belief in Jesus. You're going to lose them someday. Some of you already have. Some of you have to make changes. I mean, are you gonna I mean are you stand with the apostles and say we must obey God rather than men? It doesn't mean we're disrespectful to governments or whatever that comes away. We know God places them there, but the way we live our lives is absolutely Christ first, God first, and then and then man if they fit into his program. Verse thirty The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Oh, what does he go right to? The resurrection? He he may he may no time, right? They're threatening them, giving them strict orders, doing all these mean things to them. He goes right to the resurrection. Our God, the God of our fathers. He's speaking to Jews, right? These, these elite. Raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the high right hand as the prince and a savior. To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What an amazing statement. This one that you killed, you know where he's at now? He's at the right hand. And as soon as he says right hand, Jesus said that's where he would be. And right hand in the Jewish world meant full authority. And notice, he came to give you repentance. Notice the word grant. So you don't repent on your own, brother, sister. You didn't repent on your own. That's God's working. You don't have any goodness in you. There's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no free will that's good in you. You have a free will just to sin and live for yourself. But you don't have anything in you, in and of us, right? None of us are good. There's nothing good in us. None good, none righteous. No, not one. And so God grants that, and Jesus Christ came to grant repentance. And yet they killed him when he was willing to forgive their sins, verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things, so, that the, so is the Holy Spirit... Boy, he's bringing the heavy, isn't he? Whom God has given to those who obey him. He runs right to the resurrection. Now look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they said, you know, you're right. Jesus is God. Died for our sins. We're just going to give this all up. That's not what it says, does it? When they heard this, look at this. They were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Man, they hated Jesus, and they hated his followers. And they kept preaching a resurrected Jesus, and it just made them even matter. And so much that they were willing to break commandments that they held so dearly, let's kill them. Now, Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected. The Father brought him out, brought him out of the grave. And we all... Do not die in our sins because of that. Isn't that beautiful? 
Paul had says in this verse 17 that if he doesn't get out of the grave, we die in our sins. But the Father did raise him. And the, and the apostles were convinced of it. And those who have faith in Christ alone, we don't fear it. And there's going to come a day where you may have to stand in a court and say, I know you don't agree with me, but my faith is in Jesus Christ. I cannot do that. I will follow him because you're free of the agony of death. Six negative one. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Found in verse 18. If Christ is not bodily, this would be point number two. If Christ is not bodily resurrected, there is no hope for those who have died. Look at verse 18 with me. In the wrong book. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I mean, he's, he's using some very negative statements, isn't he? And what he just, you know what he just said? There's no hope for grandma. That's what he just said. There's no hope for your wife who passed away. There's no hope for your child who died. If Christ is not risen, there's no hope for those who have died. See, again, death wins. That's what Paul's saying. They've all gone to hell, all the Old Testament saints, all the apostles, all the early church, all the first preachers of the gospel, all the early church fathers, all the saints throughout time, the reformers, all your loved ones and family members have no hope. Paul is saying sin, Satan, and death win. God loses, everyone perishes. There's no hope to see the face of Jesus but only a judge. What a horrible consequence. See, I think he's driving it home because this is where man gets. They, they don't believe the word of God, so they start conjuring up in their minds something else. Well, you know, maybe he raised from the dead, but he certainly couldn't have raised from the dead bodily. And so they start to lessen the power of God. And, and once you start lessening what the Bible says, lessening the power of God, you start down a very dangerous trail, and Paul does not want them to do that. So he comes at them with these extremely hard consequences. See, that's what he told the Pharisees in John 8, 21. He said, I'm going to go away. Now listen to this. This is really, really good. I'm going to go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. And where I am going, listen to what he says, you cannot come. To his disciples, John chapter 14, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Equality with the Father, right? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In chapter 13, right at the end, verse 36, somewhere around there, he tells Peter and the disciples, he says, I got to go to a place, and you can't come yet, but you will come later. And, and right before Easter, we, we, we spent time in this passage in John 14. And what Jesus is teaching is that i got to go somewhere where you can't go. Well, where is that? To the cross. I, I think we think it's heaven, but it's not. That's not what the pastor talked about. I've got to go prepare a way for you. i got to go, because I'm going to be the way, the truth, and the life. But i got to go prepare a way. You can't come right now, Peter. But as soon as I get this prepared, I go and be the atonement. I go be the propitiation for you. I go satisfy the Father's wrath. I bring justification and righteousness to you. Then you're going to come with me. Because I'm going to prepare a way for you. To the Pharisees, 
I'm going where you're never going. You believe in your own righteousness. You reject me. You die in your sins. Such such a difference, right? From John 8 to John 14, these die in their sins. These have a way prepared for them. That's the difference. And the Lord does that for his glory. Seventh negative that he gives here in verse 19 is, if Christ is not bodily, bodily resurrected, Christians are the most pitiful beings of, of all humanity. This is point three, but the seventh negative one here. Look at verse 19. If we, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, very key little phrase there, we are of all men most pitied. See, to, to the Corinthians, they thought Jesus, his life was great. Everything is about his life that was on earth. That's all they could focus on because they could not attach humanity to deity. They, they could not put that together. So everything was focused on it. And I want to challenge you a little bit about some of the things that go on on TVs and movies and things like that. Just be careful with this thing because man loves to focus on what they could see here on earth and they miss the resurrected God. That's an agnostic type of view. They have a very difficult view of understanding that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is in full humanity even to this day. And so we want to be careful with that. And so he says, look, here in verse 19, in this life only. Yes, we love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We love those passages, don't we? It's the life of Christ. We, I love preaching them. I love reading them. I enjoy it. But if that's all we got, and he doesn't get out of that grave and go to heaven, we are the most pitiful. That's what he's telling us here. It's so much more than just this physical life on this earth. That's what he's reminding us. He uses this word pitied. Literally, the word means, the Greek word means most miserable and wretched. If he doesn't get out of that grave, we are miserable, wretched people. If we only have a crucified Christ, and he doesn't bodily raise from the grave, we are most pitiful. If we only have a great humanitarian who fed people and healed people, but doesn't bodily get out of the grave, we're most pitiful. If we only have a bodily dead Jesus, we are just like all the dead religions of the world. And we're most pitiful. If we're fighting against sin and temptation by the strength of God and we're struggling to please the Lord and lives lives that honor the Lord and lives lives according to the scriptures, but we don't have a bodily raised Lord Jesus Christ, just a dead Jesus, we are most pitiful. If you're willing to lay your life down for the Lord Jesus Christ and die for the purposes of God, and yet we have a bodily dead Jesus, we are most pitiful. If we long for heaven, and you long for the freedom, the restraints of this world and all of its struggles, in this human body, but you still have just a dead bodily Jesus, you are pitiful. Think about this. If you attain all the things, you get, get all the health, wealth, and prosperity that you have. If you, if you ran after that and God gave you all of that, and you have a bodily dead Jesus, you are pitiful because those things are worthless. See, Paul's telling us that we have 
placed our entire hope in a risen Jesus. And yet, if he is not bodily resurrected, his own life, Paul says, he says, my own life is the biggest sham, the biggest waste of time. And he of all people who followed Christ and beat, whipped, shipwrecked, all the things he went for, he says, I'm the most pitiful. Do you believe in a bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's part of the gospel. If you confess through your mouth that the Lord Jesus died for you and was raised from the dead, you will be saved. It is a critical part of the gospel. And do you, or do you believe in vain? Christ did not die in vain. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you do not believe in vain, your life is precious to the Lord, not pitiful. Fourth, we're living between resurrections. We're living between resurrections. Look at verse 20. I love, you should have a break in your Bible, maybe a heading there that comes in there because Paul's just giving you seven negative reasons that, that are repercussions that if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, and they're kind of overwhelming as we've gone through them this last couple of weeks. Wow. But then he says, and you've got to love his conjunctions, but now Christ. He's turning your whole attention, right? All those things, if he doesn't get out of the grave, all those things are true if he does not come out of that grave bodily. Now he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. See, our Lord did die according to the scriptures, chapter, one, chapter 15, 1 through 4, right? He died according to the scriptures. He was uh, buried to declare his death. And then God bodily raised him, proving his victory over sin, Satan, and death according to scriptures. So the resurrection guarantees the final bodily resurrection of all those who believe in Jesus Christ, right? And we're these living, uh, so we're, we're, we're living between these two resurrections, aren't we? You have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you have the resurrection of all of his saints someday. And we're, we're in between that right now. And it's quite a time, right? It's quite, it's quite interesting to live between these two resurrections. We live in a time of great hope. We look forward to the coming of our king. We look forward to new bodies being outfitted for eternity, right? Ready to live forever and not decay and fall apart like we do. Our resurrected bodies are connected to our glorified souls. They're, they're, God's going to put them together, right? And we long for that day. We will take on, listen, think about this. We will take on the form of the resurrected Christ. And we will be rewarded for the things that were done in this flesh and, and, and done with eternal value, those things that were really worshipful to the Lord. We'll celebrate and rejoice over the blessing of the marriage of the Lamb. That will just be an amazing, wonderful, huge party with the bridegroom. We'll be partners with the Lord Jesus Christ as he sets up his kingdom and rules and reigns. Satan's rule will come to an end. He'll be bound. He'll be thrown in the lake of fire. And our Lord Jesus Christ will rule forever. And all those who reject him will spend eternity in hell. Now here's the key. But if you die, and here's what Paul wants us to know. If you die before the Lord's return, he wants us to know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He wants us to have comfort. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He talks about it here. He talks about it in Thessalonians. Over and over he talks about this in a comforting way. And many pastors um, and friends will head over, I'm sure, over the next coming days, spend time with, with Rick Delaney as he's just 
hours from the home going of his wife. And these are the things we'll remind him. And, and, and you have loved ones that, that have gone through these things and, and know Jesus Christ. You remind them of that. To be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. See, Romans 8 told you there's no condemnation and there's what? No separation. Last breath here, first breath there. No separation. That's what the Bible promises. And so the, remi- the Bible's reminding us over and over it's far better to depart and be with Christ, meaning there's no purgatory. What a false teaching. There's no holding place, no waiting room. There's no grave sleep. I'll get into that more. You're immediately with the Lord. So whether you die and go and be with the Lord or you're caught up alive with the saints that are still alive, you're with the Lord. That's the key. And he'll create a new body like his and and a body outfitted to handle all of eternity. Now, Scott, why does this have to be reminded? Well, there's a problem, right? See, he's going through these negative things because those in Corinth were infected by these Greek and Roman philosophers and even the Sadducees who taught there was no bodily resurrection. And they're struggling with that. They think, well, you know, there's no way Jesus, this God, Jesus, who shares the essence with with God, they probably had their theology right there, could ever just have this body that was matter and matter's evil, right? So they think you're just going to resurrect and you're some little sparklies, you know, out there among the stars or something. It's disastrous, right? If you watch any of the movies, you know, when somebody dies, they kind of slowly depart from the earth and they're kind of looking down and, you know, or they shoot them off in some spaceship into sparklies or something like that. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. This is hope. And this is what he's doing. But this agnostic type instruction had led people to believe that the spirit was good, matter was bad. And so this bodily bodily resurrection was just rejected. And they couldn't fathom that their perfect souls, and they believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ, they believed in the gospel, they believed that Jesus died for them, but they could not get their minds around that, this, that we would have a new body with these perfect souls. But without the bodily resurrection, you don't have the gospel. And that's why he said in verse 12, how can it be that some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? They're rejecting this truth. So, so Paul is reminding them that they have already believed in the gospel. You received it. You stand in it. You, you were saved by it. You hold fast to it. And so in some sense, he's like he's talking about the Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Who, who's lied to you about this? What, what false teaching have you believed that you're, you're not going to be bodily resurrected? And that's why Paul gave those seven negative and disastrous repercussions. And if he's not raised, this is what, this is what all this comes to. But now again, look at verse 20. This is this glorious truth. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul says, you believe it, you stand in it, you received it, you know it. It brought you to salvation. God fulfilled his perfect plan. The resurrection is the capstone of the gospel. And and we are completely saved. But someday he's going to resurrect us. And we are going to be the capstone of the fulfillment of his plan. His, His children are all home. And off to eternity we go. Now we come to this little phrase, first fruits of those who are asleep. See, people are saying there's no resurrection, and people are going, well, what about the people who have died? What about them? 
So he, so he uses some Old Testament terminology here, and I think he's spiritually inspired to anticipate their questions here. And he uses the word asleep. It means it's passive. It, it means they die or they pass away. But let me tell you this, and this is really key. The term asleep is not referring to the soul. It's referring to the body. In fact, it's a very tender term that Paul chooses here by the inspiration of the Spirit, referring to the body. Only the body that's in the grave. That's what's sleeping in a sense. That's what's died, that body. Souls do not sleep. Do you know that? Your soul is eternally awake. And we have evidences of this, right? Rich man, Lazarus. Parable. Well, People's names are given. The only parable where people are names are given. Most theologians believe he's referring to actual people. Their souls were very awake. Hey, can you have Lazarus dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue? Because in this temporary holding place that I'm in, being judged, waiting for my final judgment, I am being tormented. That's really physical, isn't it? And he's, somehow there's this gulf between them at this time. We look at Luke, Luke chapter 16. He sees him in his pleasure, in his complete contentment. They use the term in the bosom of Abraham. It's a term of just complete rest and, and, and comfort. Can you take your finger physically, put it in a water and put it on my tongue because I'm in agony? This is not soul sleep, brothers and sisters. That is a fallacy from the pit of hell. And you have to reject that because there's all kinds of people that believe in some kind of soul sleep. You don't die, you just hang around in the grave for a while, your soul just takes a nap, and then God will wake it up later. Well, you just denied Jesus Christ. You just denied the gospel. The absent from the bodies be present of the Lord. You just denied all that. And that's what these religions do because 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8 said, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, Right now, it's all of us right now. We're absent from the Lord, in a sense, right? For we walk by faith and not sight. First thing, Rick texts me this morning. He goes, she is no longer walking by faith. She's walking by sight. Isn't that great reversal? Isn't that great reversal? Right now, Lord, I, by your God-given faith, I believe you are who you said you are and did what you said you did. I believe by faith. Someday eye to eye with our Savior. Mars is there now. And then think about this. We are of good courage, I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body than be home in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we fight so hard. Don't we? We, we fight so hard to stay here, you know. Some of you young people, I, I know you want to get married. And, and, I, and I remember those days. And then you want to have your first kid. And, and then you want to get your first home. And, and this world just kind of sucks you in, doesn't it? Listen, there is nothing even comparable to being in the presence of our Lord. You run this race as long as the Lord gives you breath, young and old, in this room. You fight off discouragement by the grace of God, by the truth of the Scriptures. You hold to your glorious Savior and King and run this race till He says you're done. But don't hold on to this world. Friend of this world is no friend of God, James says. This is not our world. We're just passing through, right? This world is always uh, working against, uh, lusting and warring against our souls, Peter says. This is not our home. So our bodies sleep in a sense, but our souls are very much alive and very much awake. 
and they're with the Lord. I think one of the things as I kind of wrap this portion up, our bodies, in a sense, are anticipating the resurrection. I think that's characterized by Christ. Christ's bodily resurrection was not some isolated event. I, I, I think as Christians, we, we're anticipating, our bodies even anticipate that. I think when we suffer and we go through difficult things and our body goes through difficult things, there is this bodily anticipation for a new body that the Lord will give us. And look how he tells us how we can look forward to this. He uses this word, first fruits. He says that Jesus Christ is the first fruit of those who fell asleep. Meaning Christ's fruitful bodily resurrection is the promise of more fruitful bodily resurrections. And this term is an Old Testament term. Um, if you've been with us in our midweek study, we're working our way through the Pentateuch, and we've run into this several times. And so this first fruit harvest of the crops, the Old Testament saints were said to come and bring that, give it to God. And as they gave it to God, they're saying, here's the first of our crops. We thank you for what you've done. We believe in you, and we believe that this is the first of what's to come. Right? Sometimes we just think, oh, I just got to give them my first. You know, here's my money. No, no. You have a gracious God. This is the first of what's yet to come. That's, that's the understanding of the first fruits. And so we see this in Exodus 23, 19. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Numbers chapter 18, verse 13. We just saw this. This is about the priesthood. The first ripe fruits of all that is in the land which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Every household should do this, who is clean, bring it. And so it was a promise of what is to come. God wanted first fruits because they were the best, and Christ is the best. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise of the resurrection of what's to come. He's the first to be raised to the dead, and a lot's coming behind him. You know, if you've got an apple tree only with one apple on it, cut it down, use it for firewood. There's nothing any good there, right? You got one blossom, that's it? No, no, that one blossom leads to multiple blossoms and then, and then into fruit, and eventually it becomes ripe. That's, this is God's promise. When God raised him from the dead, he's saying, I promise you I'm going to raise your body. He's so gracious. So his resurrection is the first fruit. It's going to lead to a harvest of many bodies that will be resurrected. And the first fruit speaks of the quality of the harvest. You say, well, how does he do that? One of my favorite passages when I talk about the resurrection is Philippians 3, 20 through 21. The Bible says, we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, just listen to this. Who will transform the body of your humble estate into the conformity with the body of his glory. Well, how will he do this? By the exertion of the power that he has been given to subject all things to himself. See, so how is he going to do that? Well, remember this little point? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. He spoke creation into existence? I don't think he has any problem resurrecting our bodies. He'll resurrect the shark eaten, the burned up, the blown up, the, the buried, bodily buried, the ashes. He'll raise everything. That's what he does. He has no problem doing those things. And so our resurrection is based on his resurrection. Well, I got to quit there and we'll come back and, and get more into the impact of this because what he's going to do, and let me just give you a little bit of highlight. He's going to tie, he's going to help us see, because all died in Adam, 
And we're all sons and daughters of Adam. We, we acquired that sin. We became sinners at federal headship. And then he's going to say, we all believers are now in Christ. And if Christ is resurrected, we're resurrected. Father, we thank you for this time in the word, Lord. We thank you that you love us and you did not leave us, Lord. You never leave us nor forsake us, the Bible says. In fact, Lord, you tell us that you will come and get us. We know the souls of our dear sister, Marcia, and so many others that have been here are in your presence right now. They're enjoying wonderful worship and blissful joyfulness, Lord. But we know and we believe that you will resurrect bodies, Lord, by your power, by the exertion of your power to transform the body into the image of yours, Lord. And Lord, it is the capstone of the gospel the resurrection, that we will dwell and live with you and enjoy life with bodies that are full of life as we serve our living King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord, we thank you that this promise was given to us. We pray for those in this room or those listening who have lost loved ones. Lord, I pray this brings comfort to them. That if that person is in Jesus Christ, they are immediately right now with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is going to resurrect that body. Maybe that body was worn out and tired and been through all kinds of things. He's going to resurrect that and give that person a body just like his. That is ready for all of eternity. Where they can worship and live and enjoy the presence of God forever. So Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us in the grave. We thank you there's no such thing as soul sleep. Our souls are satisfied and in your presence. So we give you praise for these things in Jesus' name.